Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to Psalm 31 this morning as we continue our summer looking at some of these songs of Jesus, as we call them. And we're on Psalm 31 this morning. And if you're using the blue Bible in front of you, it's on page 510. 510. So you can go right to it there. Psalm 31. Hear the word of the Lord. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cried to you for help, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 
Amen. Well, a few years ago, there was a commercial for Geico that showed teenagers, you might remember this one, that showed teenagers running away from something really scary. It's in the middle of the night. You don't see what they're running from, but they are terrified and they're running. And they come up, as they're running, they come upon this really creepy looking old house. And one of them says, let's hide in the attic. Another one says, no, no, let's hide in the basement. Well, a third girl, the voice of reason says, why can't we just get in the running car? But one of the kids says, are you crazy? Let's go hide behind the chainsaws, right? (laughs) Then a voiceover says, people in horror movies make really poor decisions. And then right after that, you hear a chainsaw ring, and you see them scream and say, let's head to the cemetery. And we laugh, and it's funny because it's true, right? I'm not advocating for those types of movies, but in those kind of movies, when characters are in trouble and scared, they always pick the worst possible places to hide. They go looking for safety in all the wrong places. And that's why you scream at the screen, don't go in there! But in the midst of their fear and distress, those characters, they're looking for anywhere for refuge, but they often choose things that can't really offer them the refuge they seek. And we do the same thing, don't we? When our lives are a wreck and we're running scared, looking desperately for somewhere to hide from our distress, we can pick really bad places to hide. We often run to places that can't actually offer us refuge. I want you this morning to think about some of the places you go when you're really stressed, when you're really overwhelmed. What do you do when you're worried and exhausted? What do you look to for refuge from distress and despair? Some of us run to control. We work harder, move faster, do more, speak more firmly to try to regain control of the situation. Some of us go the other direction. We try to escape. We run to entertainment, to videos, social media, sports, anything to get our minds off of reality and offer us refuge from the pressures we're facing. Some of us run to order. We clean and we organize to make sense of life. Some run to numbing the stress through having a drink or two or five or ten. Some run to people, just try to be around anybody we can, And some go the opposite way and run to isolation, pushing everybody away. Food, video games, school, work, exercise, politics, house projects, shopping. The list could go on and on and on. When we feel the weight of the world pressing down on us, we all run somewhere for refuge. We do. The problem is we're often tempted to be just like those kids in the commercial and run to places that can't offer us real refuge. Instead, Psalm 31 has one clear goal for us this morning, that we would run to the Lord as our refuge. The psalm opens up with David's declaration, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. And then it ends with the truth, The Lord preserves the faithful. That's the message. Take refuge in the Lord because he will preserve you. 
When you're weak, when you're weary, when you're rejected, when you're afraid, when you're depressed, when you're hopeless, when you've sinned, he will be your refuge. He will hold you fast. This psalm that we're looking at this morning, it's a lament. As we know, a lament is, is crying out for God's help and rescue in the midst of trouble. And just like the other psalms of lament, it follows a typical pathway from anguish to assurance, from terror to trust, from crisis to confidence. That's what laments do. They walk that path. But there's something different about this psalm. It doesn't just walk that road from anguish to assurance. It walks it twice. We see not one, but two movements from pain to praise. Now, we're not told why it happens twice. It could be a lot of things, right? It could be that after David works through one trial, there's a renewed onslaught of trouble. A second wave of suffering comes right on the heels of the first. We've experienced that, haven't we? You get through one thing and right after that you think you can't handle anymore and bam, there comes the next thing. Or maybe that's not the case. Could also be that after David works through the fear and the pain of the original trial, it comes back. He recalls it all over again and the distress hits him afresh and he needs to work through it once more. Ever had that? where you worked through something in your life and you finally came to the place where you're like, okay, even with all this going on, I trust you, Lord. I trust you and I'm ready to go. But then out of nowhere, the fear and the sorrow were back and you had to walk that same road all over again. That's what Psalm 31 does. The road from agony to assurance is the road twice traveled in this psalm. So let's walk that road with David this morning. Here's how we're gonna break down the psalm. We're going to break it down into two trips down that road. Trip one is in verses one to eight. And you're going to see two parts in there. You're going to see David's cry in one and two and David's confidence in three to eight. And then we go down that road again. Trip two down the road is verses nine to 22. And we see David's crisis. Then we see his cry. And then we see his confidence. And finally, the last two verses they kind of give us a where do we go from here? After we've walked this road twice, what's our application? Now what? Okay, so let's look first at David's cry in verses 1 and 2. He says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Now, once again, the, the great thing is we don't know from these verses exactly what trial David was facing here. We can't draw a straight line to say, oh, it was when that happened. But what we do know is that whatever the trial was, it was serious. He needs somewhere to run for refuge. Look at what he asked God to do for him. First, he says, don't let me be put to shame. Now, we think of shame in our day and age mainly as a feeling. Something that we feel internally because of who we are or what we've done or what's been done to us. But that's, that's not what David's talking about here. He's talking about being publicly disgraced. Being put to shame would mean that he would be humiliated before others. He'd be exposed. 
and it would be seen as a sign of God's judgment. If you're put to shame, at your public disgrace, everybody looks and says, ah, that's God showing he's in the wrong. We find out later in verse 18 that there's people who are lying about him. And we see that it's impacting the way people treat him in verse 11. They're plotting against him in verse 20. And if these lying plots succeed, David's going to be put to public disgrace and shame. So here, David stakes his whole honor, his whole public perception of what everybody's going to think of him on God. And he says, God, let me never be put to shame. Then he goes on. He asks God to deliver him, and it says, in his righteousness. Now when David says that, he's saying that it would be the right thing for God to do to deliver him. He's not just saying, please do it. He's saying, God, it would be right for you to deliver me. Well, how can he say that? Why is that so? Is it because David deserves it? Is it because he says, God, look at what all the things I've done. I've earned this. Therefore, the right thing for you to do is deliver me. No, of course not. It's right because God has promised to save him as one of his covenant people. That's what God has committed himself to. He's put his stamp on these people and said, I will deliver you. This, you are mine. And so now for God to not deliver him would be unrighteous. It would be God not keeping his promise. So not only will God defend David's public honor here and not let him be put to shame, even more so God is going to defend his own honor by doing what is right and delivering David. Next, David asks God to hear him. He says, incline your ear. Lean forward in your chair, God. Listen up and rescue me speedily. Now this is important. I I want you to see this. Take note that there is nothing at odds with praying both, I will wait for the Lord and rescue me speedily. One is not right and the other wrong. Both can and should be true for us. When we pray, you can say, God, I I need and want you to do this quickly. Rescue me speedily. Please do it soon. And I ultimately trust your timing. I will wait for your perfect plan. Both are true. Then notice what David asked God at the end of verse 2. He says, be a rock of refuge for me a strong fortress to save me. Now that makes sense, right? That's what he needs God to be for him. He needs a place of refuge from all that he's facing. He needs a place to run and be safe. But as we shift gears into David's confidence in verses 3 to 8, look at the first thing he declares in his confidence. Verse 3, For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they've hidden for me. For you are my refuge. When you read that, you should should say, wait a minute. He just prayed and asked God to be his rock of refuge and fortress. God, be these things. But now he says, for, the reason I'm asking you to be those things, for you are my rock and fortress. You are my refuge. Is David just, did he forget where he was going in his prayer? You ever have that when you're praying out loud and you start down one trail and you suddenly realize, I don't remember the train of thought. 
I don't know where this prayer is going. And so everybody else listening is like, what are they talking about? Is that what happened to David here? Is he just getting confused? Not at all. He's asking God to be an experience what he knows him to be by faith. He's asking God to help him believe what he believes. He's saying, God, you are my rock. Be my rock. You are my fortress. Be my fortress. And I don't know about you, but I find myself in David's shoes all the time. Where I know God is my strength. But I pray, God, be my strength today. Where I believe God is my provider, but I ask him, Lord, please provide. When I believe that God is both sovereign and good and that he works all things together for my good, but I ask him to show his power and his care and to work this situation that I'm facing today for my good. Why? Because we want to experience what we know by faith. That's how David prays here. He intellectually knows that God is a refuge. But he doesn't just know it intellectually and can quote you chapter and verse and say, yes, God is a refuge. He doesn't just know it intellectually and then run to other places for help in the midst of his distress. He puts feet on his faith and runs to the God who he knows is his refuge and prays for him to be his refuge. That's what prayer is, friends. It's asking God to be and do exactly who we know him to be and what we know him to do. Knowing, hear this, knowing that God is good and gracious and kind doesn't eliminate the need to ask him to be those things. It empowers the asking. It actually emboldens our asking. We can ask God to be our fortress because we know he's our fortress. You can ask him to be gracious because you know he's gracious. That's what David prays here. And then in verse 5, David shows just how much he trusts God to be his refuge. He says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. David is entrusting his entire being to God. He's putting all that he has into the hands of God. That word commit there is it was used often like making a deposit in a bank. Right? If you commit your money to the bank, you're entrusting something to the care of another for safekeeping. When you put money into the bank, you have every hope and belief that when you go to get it out, it will be there safe and sound. And David's saying in verse 5 that he's so sure that God is his refuge. He's so thoroughly sure that God is his refuge that he's entrusting all of himself to God's safekeeping. Now those words in verse 5 probably sound familiar. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Right? These were the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross in Luke 23. As Jesus faced enemies and shame and danger and rejection and weakness and the terror of God's wrath, what comes out of him? 
Psalm 31. Why? Because as he faces the depths of agony and suffering, he looks for refuge. And Jesus, more than anyone else, knows that God is the only sure source of refuge. So he commits his spirit, he commits all of him, his very life, into the Father's hand, fully confident that the faithful God would redeem him. But here's the difference between David and Jesus. Whereas David prays in confidence that God will deliver him from death, Jesus prays in confidence that God will deliver him through death. Jesus could face the most intense suffering a human being has ever faced because he had entrusted himself completely to God as his refuge. He sought us when we were wandering from the fold of God. And he, to rescue us from danger, interposed his precious blood. In other words, Jesus took everything wrong in you and me. Every sin, our unbelief, our lack of love for God and neighbor. He took all of it and he paid it all. We are bought by him at such a cost, we sang earlier. And the question is, how could he do that? Well, Jesus could walk through the suffering of our sin because he committed his spirit to the faithful God. He trusted that no matter what he faced on that cross, God could bring him through to joy on the other side. That's what he's entrusting. I commit myself into your hands, Father, so no matter what comes on the other side of this, there's joy. How do we know? Because it was for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So now, for you and for me, because Jesus walked through the suffering we deserve for our sin, we can now trust him as our confidence. Our confidence is in the one who committed all of himself to the hands of God and proved he's trustworthy. Jesus, in a, in a sense, said, let me show you Let me show you how trustworthy his hands are. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we can look at that and say, look what happened. Look how sure his deliverance was. And because he did that, we can now commit all of us to him. Because we know our Savior loves us so and he will hold us fast. He stands ready to save us, full of pity, love, and power. And as we said earlier, his power will keep us. Till we're home with him at last. And friends, look at, there is so much in this psalm. Look at the character of God in verses 6 to 8. This is, this is so helpful to know this about your God. David declares, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. So David contrasts here. He says, unlike those who trust in worthless idols, no, no, that's not for me. He puts his trust firmly in the Lord. And he rejoices in his steadfast love. And then he tells us why. Why is he so happy in God's love? What has God done? Look at these words. God has seen his affliction. God has known the distress of his soul. God has not delivered him into the hand of the enemy. God has set his feet in a broad place. 
Friends, this is what we need to see, that God has seen what David's going through. He knew, and he rescued from it. And David knows as he writes this psalm and as he walks through suffering, he knows this is what you do, God. Over and over again, this is you. How does he know that? Because he's seen it before in his Bible. In Exodus 3, when God appears to Moses and says, go rescue my people, listen to what God says. I want you to keep your eyes on Psalm 31, verses 7 and 8, but listen to Exodus 3. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. Do you hear it? It's the same language. David knows how God delivers and that he sees his people in suffering because God himself said it back in Exodus 3. And then he showed that he saw and heard and knew the suffering because he sent deliverance. And David knows that the same God who delivered his people from suffering in Egypt could deliver him too. And friends, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means he sees your affliction. Yours, Christian. He knows your suffering. No one else in this room might know what you're going through this morning. You might have kept it from everybody and just didn't put up walls and not let anyone else in to know just how bad it is and how barely you're hanging on and what you're going through. But guess what? God knows your suffering. And he will deliver you from the hands of your enemies. He will set you in a broad place. Not in a tight space when you feel stressed and overwhelmed and feel like the walls are closing in. God takes you out and sets your feet in a broad place where you have room. That's what David sees. And that's how he declares his confidence in verse 8. So now, David has walked the road. He's moved from anguish to assurance. But then we come to verse 9, and he starts walking that same road again. And I don't know about you, but I take great encouragement from this, that that's the great thing about the gospel, is you can walk this road again and again, and it never loses its power. Every time we walk this road, we find hope for the deepest despair and a refuge from our deepest distress. So let's follow David one more time as he retraces the road from cry to confidence. But this time, he does something one little difference. Is that as he starts his cry, he actually backs up and says, God, I need to tell you what my crisis is. He doesn't just jump into his prayer. He starts to pray, but then he backs up and says, God, you need to know what I'm going through. I'm going to tell you, use my words to tell you what I'm feeling. So let's listen in to see what David is going through in verses 9 to 13. And I want you to see if you can identify with David. Remember, David's a real person, just like you and me. See if you've ever been in this, or maybe you're there this morning. Look at verse 9. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. So David starts off, he starts to pray. He asks God to be gracious. God, help me. God, show me undeserved favor. Why? He says, because I'm in trouble. 
I'm in distress. And he's frustrated and sad. He's utterly overwhelmed. It says his eyes are worn out from crying. And his body and soul are exhausted as well. Have you ever been just that overwhelmed? You found that much, you've been crying that much. It's just your eyes, they won't even cry anymore. And your body just feels that nasty, exhausted, like, I've cried so much, I have nothing in the tank. I'm utterly empty. Verse 10. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. David is consumed by sorrow and sadness. His life, it says, is filled with sighing. Don't don't skip past that one, because sighs are what come out of us when we feel the weight of everything going on around us and all that's wrong and broken. Sighs are, in a sense, wordless laments. They say so much about what we're experiencing that we can't even put words to. But when you feel the brokenness and the weight and the pressure and the stress, you just find yourself going, that's saying a lot. And David says, my years are spent with sighing. And on top of that, he is weak and weary because of his sin. Verse 11 and 12. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who's dead. I have become like a broken vessel. David here, in his suffering, he's a picture of feeling utterly rejected by others. Even those closest to him, his friends and his neighbors, they run away from him. They've turned from him and they avoid him. They don't answer his calls. They don't return his texts. It's as though he says, he feels as though he's already dead. Like you've forgotten me. Like there is no communication. You've cut me off. He feels like he's been thrown away like a broken pot. There's no more use for this. What do we do with it? You just discard it. And he says, that's me. That's what you've done with me. Verse 13, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. He says there are these people who are out to get him, they're whispering about him. Have you ever had this experience at work or school or somewhere where there's a group of people kind of talking amongst themselves and you walk up and as soon as you get close, you hear the conversation die out and you have that awkward sense of, what were you guys talking about? That's what David's feeling. Only it's not like a, a humorous little thing. He knows there's some really horrible things being said about him. His enemies are out to destroy him. And it's so bad, he feels completely surrounded by fear. Terror on every side. Not just, I got this big problem over here. He says, everywhere I look, there is terror. Friends, this is where David found himself. David. The psalm writer, the king, the man after God's own heart found himself here. Physically and emotionally exhausted because of his sin and sorrow. 
He felt worn out and weak by all that he was facing in life. He feels rejected and abandoned by everyone. And everywhere he turns, there's something scary waiting for him there. Friends, God knows we'll feel this way. He expects it. And you need to know that he's not surprised or disappointed when you feel this way. That's why he put things like Psalm 31 in our Bibles. Because he wants us to know what to do when we feel these things. When life bottoms out like this and it feels like everything's crumbling around us, where can we go? Where can we run for refuge when we need it most? Well, the same place David runs. And that's what he does next in verses 14 to 18. He runs to God and cries out for refuge. But before he asks for help, he does, he does something massively important that it would be easy to miss. Look at verse 14. He says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. So here's David. And in spite of all that's going on in his circumstances that he just recounted to us, David declares his trust. He says, this is all going on, but I trust in you. David plants his flag, so to speak. He's weak, he's weary, and he's terrified. And he says, but I trust in you, Lord. In his heart, he does two things in these, these few words. First, he gives God his rightful place as sovereign. You are my God. My times are in your hand. He acknowledges, you're the one in control, God. And second, he remembers his secure relationship with God. He claims both intimacy with him. God, you're, you're my God. You're not just the God out there, this strong, powerful force. You're, you're my God. And he acknowledges his dependence on him. My times are in your hand, God. I, I'm completely and absolutely dependent on you. So here, David's setting it up. And he's acknowledging both who God is and his relationship to God. And we need to be clear, when David says, my times are in your hand, he's not being fatalistic. He's not just resigning himself saying, whatever happens, happens. That's, that is what it is. No, just like in verse 5. He's again entrusting himself, all of his days, everything that happens to him, to his faithful God. When David says, my times are in your hands, he's not giving up. He's giving himself over in faith to the God he knows he can trust. And there's two things I want to learn from David here. And I hope you want to learn them with me. First, he rehearses what's true before he requests what he needs. Do you do this when you pray? He goes to God in prayer, and before he requests what he needs, he rehearses what's true. He reminds himself, who is it that I'm praying to? Who is it that I trust? And he remembers that this God is sovereign over all, and this God is his God. He belongs to him. And so when David remembers these things, it primes the pump of his heart. Now I can ask God in faith for what I desperately need. He doesn't just rush into it. He says, okay. You're the God in heaven. You do all that you please. And what pleases you is doing good to me. Okay. So God, because of that, here's what I need. Do you do this when you pray? Second, notice how David can both weep and 
trust God at the same time. His sorrow and sighing in verse 10 don't negate his faith in verse 14. Friend, do not wrongly believe that trusting God means you never feel or show the pain or distress you're experiencing. Both can be true simultaneously. David will later write in Psalm 56, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Trust and fear coexist. Paul says he's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There's this reality of the Christian life that you can go through these things and you can feel deeply these feelings of pain and fear and sorrow and still trust God in the midst of it. But notice that David keeps moving. He doesn't just feel them simultaneously. He keeps moving from pain to praise, from crisis to confidence. And that's the road of hope that we're meant to walk in the gospel. Because David is wanting to get to his confidence, he cries out for help. So pick it up at the end of verse 15. Here's what he asks God. He says, Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. So as he prays here, David first gives us a contrast in verse 15. He said that he knows his times are in God's hand. So he asked God to rescue him from the enemy's hand. What David's doing here is he's saying because God has a firm grip on David, he can rescue him from whatever and whoever else has a hold on him. When evil seeks to take a hold and it seems like we're slipping into the clutches of sin and unbelief, God's strong hand holds us fast and nothing can snatch us out of his hand. That's what David's banking on here. He says, because my times are in your hand, get me out of their hand. Then David prays for God to make his face shine on him. This is the same thing right from the the blessing that God taught Aaron to pray over the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance and give you peace. He's saying, I need that. I need that shining face of God, the gracious blessing of God on my life. And he wants God to save him, to spare him from shame, but instead put his enemies to shame. He's, he keeps playing off these things. In other words, he's saying, God, vindicate my trust in you so that I'm not put to shame, show that my trust is well-placed, but expose the wrong of those who pay regard to worthless idols. Silence them and their lies, which they use to attack me. In all this prayer, I want you to notice that David is not trying to take matters into his own hand. Instead, he keeps repeatedly entrusting everything into God's hands. When his life is falling apart, he runs to God for refuge. And as he does, his crying gives way to his confidence. We see that in verse 19 and 22. Look at 19. He says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. 
I, just, I, I lingered over this verse. Here's what it made me think of. When I was a little kid, I remember going to Sam's Club. Okay? Now, keep in mind, for a little kid who grew up in a town that did not have a Kmart, a Walmart, a Target, or anything remotely close to that size, this was a big deal. We would drive about an hour to get to Sam's Club. And then when we got there, we'd walk into what felt like to six-year-old Dan, the biggest building that had ever been built by humanity. And as you walk in, there would be just aisle after aisle of everything I could imagine. And it's not just that they had everything. No, no. They had lots of everything. You like fruit snacks? Oh, look, they got the fruit snacks. You like? No, no, they got a pallet of fruit snacks. You like cereal? Here's enough cereal for your small town. This warehouse was loaded with good stuff. And David knows that's what God's goodness is like. He has a storehouse of goodness for those who take refuge in him. Friends, it's stored up. It's piled high with every mercy you could ever need. Its shelves are stocked with grace and help for every trial. There are blessings in bulk and you'll find aisle after aisle of kindness. And it's all stored up for those who fear God and take refuge in him. And best of all, it's free. It's yours. If you are trusting in Jesus, this is yours, Christian. All you have to do is come in the storehouse. All you have to do is take refuge in Jesus. Trust in him. He's the one in whom all this goodness is found. He unlocked the door to this storehouse of goodness and now invites us to come. He says, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you full, shelves stocked of love and pity and power. And in the arms of our dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms and a storehouse of goodness. That's what David knows. And he goes on in verse 20. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. So when we take refuge in God, not only does he provide everything good, he protects us from everything evil. And verse 21, it says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. David's saying that when he was trapped in the midst of his suffering, that's what a besieged city is. It's when they, they cut off all means of escape and you are, you're in there. They're going to wear you down. And when David was trapped in the midst of his suffering, being worn down, he felt utterly cut off from God. No route to get to him. Like God couldn't see him or hear him or know what he was going through. That's what David felt and that's what he said. But the text tells us he wasn't really cut off. 
God heard him when he cried for help. In his pain, David felt distant, but God was always near, always listening, always seeing, always working. When David couldn't get out of his problems, like being in a besieged city, God wondrously showed his steadfast love and delivered him. Then finally, after David has twice walked this road from agony to assurance in God, at the end of the psalm, he turns to us, his fellow travelers on that road, to encourage us on our own paths. He tells us, well, where do you go from here? You've heard my, my journey. Where do you go? Verse 23, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Friends, David is a man who's known pain and suffering. But he also knows where to run to find refuge in the midst of it. And as he said in verse 1, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Now he calls us to do the same. And he tells us, why should we take refuge in the Lord? What's the payoff? Why would we do that? Because the Lord preserves the faithful. He will keep us all the way home. So, love the Lord, all you his saints. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for David and his example of where to run for refuge in the midst of deep trial and difficult suffering. God, I pray for those of us here who are walking through that today. I pray that you would use Psalm 31 to kindle fresh hope. That you would show us that you are a trustworthy refuge and that we would run to you by faith. God, keep us, block up our ways from running to other things for refuge. Cheap, flimsy shelters that cannot keep us from the damage we so much dread. Instead, help us to beat a path quickly and continuously to the arms of our dear Savior. And when we get there, help us not find just protection, but help us to find a storehouse of goodness waiting for us. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.